Russian and Greek. A little more fire, a little less fire, a little less time, a little more spark. Close your mouth and open up your heart, and baby, say it's fire, the 64th regular convention at the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod, is just around the corner. As we prepare for that convention under the theme, One People Forgiven, I invite and encourage you to consider the following five critical considerations. Number one, doctrinal agreement in the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. Number two, unity, concord and harmony in our beloved church body. Number three, the mission of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. Number four, how our synod is providing global confessional leadership. And number five, financial realities in our Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. May God bless your consideration of these very important matters as we prepare for this convention, which is just around the corner. And just around the corner it is. That was the president of the second largest Lutheran church body in America, the Lutheran Church, Missouri, uh, Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod, uh, President Gerald Kieschnick. He has released uh, some videos on the LCMS website in preparation uh, for this year's convention, uh, which takes place in Houston, Texas, July 10th through 17th. And uh, we on Table Talk Radio think these are worth considering, as he suggested. Uh, so to do that with us today is Pastor Todd Wilkin. He's host of the uh, radio program Issues, etc. Welcome, Todd. Evan, thank you very much for having me. Well, here we are heading into the convention, and we have some considerations uh, from from our our, our synodical president. Uh, we're going to go through through these each one by one. But first, what do you make of, of the considerations that he found important enough to post on the website? I actually agree that uh, I may quibble with the order that they were put in, uh, but I actually agree that these do cover pretty much all of the bases of uh, what's the challenges facing the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. Um, I I do disagree with the way he approaches them, the way he frames the questions. But just as topics, I think it's pretty much on the money. Uh, suppose someone has uh, mistakenly tuned into this program and <laughs> is wondering, uh, what, what's the big deal? I mean, sh- certainly this is, this is LCMS Inside Baseball, but, but uh, suppose someone's listening to this and says, you know, who cares? They're going to go off, uh, do their meeting, have their business, and then we'll just carry on as normal. How do you respond? Well, that's a very good question, by the way, and I think probably um, 90% of the members of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod, and that, these are people who probably know that they're members of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod, uh, could care less, uh, or couldn't care less, I should say. Um, and that's to be expected. That's just the, the culture that we're living in nowadays. The reason it does matter, and especially to members of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod, is because the the way we approach these questions, uh, doctrinal unity, unity and harmony, uh, the financial situation, the mission of the church, um, all of these things, the way we approach them and the answers that we give, how we diagnose the problem pretty much dictates what remedy we're going to seek for that problem. And I think that the current leadership of the Lutheran Church Missouri Senate while it understands where the problem is, I think largely misdiagnoses the problem. And therefore, 
doesn't really come to a real remedy for the problems that are facing the church body. And these are big. We're talking about the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod sitting on a continuum with a lot of other church bodies in mainline Protestantism. And we may sit farther back from the precipice of liberal decline than other church bodies, but we're still on that continuum. There's no doubt about it. We are flirting with things that other church bodies have flirted with for 30 years. And the more we continue to flirt with them, the farther along that continuum we move and the less relevant we become to the world because the gospel gets emphasized less and less. And the less we focus on our real message and more on uh, trying to accommodate ourselves to the culture. I actually think, I don't think it's going too far to say that the future of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod, as it presently exists, is on the line. Okay, let's then address the first of, of his concerns, and he has a, a whole video on this. By the way, if you would like to, to look at these yourself, you can go to uh, look at them on the uh, the website, lcms.org. But the first of the considerations he would want us uh, to consider before the convention is that of uh, doctrinal unity in the LCMS. Critical consideration number one is doctrinal agreement in the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. This is a matter that's very close to my heart, and I know it's close to your heart as well. Many have heard me say or have read what I have written about the reality that doctrinal agreement in the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod is a wonderful blessing that God has given this church body over the 163 years of its existence. I thank God, and I know you join me in thanking God, that we are not arguing about or even debating some of the major issues of theology and doctrine that other church bodies are not at all in agreement concerning. I thank God that we have been blessed with a wonderful understanding of the authority of Holy Scripture and how Scripture serves as the only rule and norm of faith and of practice. Most of you have seen perhaps a document that was published by Concordia Publishing House titled, This We Believe, Selected Topics of Faith and Practice in the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. While this document does not cover all matters of doctrine and practice in our synod, it does discuss those matters that are of more contemporary interest and about which there is concern throughout the entire world and also in the church. This is a wonderful tool, and I thank God for it. I pray that it's useful to you in your Bible studies and in your own personal studies of the positions of the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod, on these important matters. You've also heard me say or seen me write a reality and an acknowledgement that there are certain areas of doctrine and practice in which the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod, is not in complete agreement. These include administration of Holy Communion, the role of women in the church, matters pertaining to worship styles, and inter-Christian relationships as we continue to work on those very important matters to come also to a point of complete agreement on them, I pray that all of us will continue to remain faithful to our covenants of love about these matters as we search the Holy Scriptures and engage in significant dialogue and study about these matters. In the meantime, again, 
I know you join me in thanking God for the wonderful blessings he's given the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod in our areas of doctrinal agreement. Pastor Wilkin, if you and I agree on the big things, you know, like the the creeds, none of us would would quibble, have anything to disagree with uh, anything in the ecumenical creeds. Uh, we even agree uh, maybe on, on communion, and we, we agree on what baptism is, but we still disagree on the smaller things of, of the Lutheran Church, uh, things like the role of women in the church or worship styles. Are we in doctrinal agreement? We may or may not be in doctrinal agreement. What do you mean uh, by that? Well, what I mean by that is um, there's a tendency, and this is something that actually grew out of um, in the very, very beginnings of uh, uh, Christian liberalism in Europe in the 19th century, a tendency to, be, to minimize doctrine and to be minimalistic when it comes to doctrine and to judge doctrinal unity rather, upon, rather than upon how much we agree with really essentially how little we disagree on. So, and this is exactly what President Kieschnick is engaging in here when he frames the question of our doctrinal agreement. The first thing he does is he compares the Lutheran Church Missouri Senate's level of doctrinal agreement with other mainline Protestant church bodies. Now, it's true that we agree more doctrinally with each other than do Christians in other mainline Protestant church bodies. But that's irrelevant. We do not judge how healthy our doctrinal agreement is by, comparis- by comparing ourselves to other church bodies. Because you can always find another church body that is more messed up doctrinally than the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. So it is a bogus comparison. If we compare ourselves to the Evangelical Lutheran Church in America, of course we're not debating the things they're debating. We shouldn't be debating the things that they've, de- that they've been debating. No one should be. They shouldn't be debating those things. So to judge the health of our doctrinal agreement or the, um, how good we're doing in doctrinal agreement by compar- our, com- comparing ourselves to other church bodies is really framing the question in a very disingenuous way. The standard for doctrinal agreement is Scripture, not other mainline Protestant church bodies. And I've noticed that Dr. Kieschnick has consistently done this throughout his nine years as president. Rather than saying, Scripture calls us to complete unity in all these things, the gospel and all its articles, he basically says, well, we're doing better than the other church bodies are, but we still have a few points of agreement and we'll work on those. The other thing that President Kieschnick is doing here is, while he's giving lip service to searching the scriptures and to having agreement on the authority of scripture, the document that he cites, this we believe, if you look at it, has precious little scripture cited in it. It is mostly synodical resolutions, not scriptural passages, not the basis for real doctrinal unity, but basically our official convention positions on certain issues. Now, it's good that the Lutheran Church Missouri Senate has taken positions on the four areas that he's talking about, communion practice, women in the church, uh, worship, and inter-Christian relationships. It's good that we've taken biblical stands there. We haven't always taken biblical stands there. 
But again, the touchstone for doctrinal agreement is scripture, not comparing, comparing us to other church bodies and not what we say in convention, not our quote-unquote official positions. Um, there's precious little scripture in that document. There's precious little appeal to the Lutheran confessions in that doc- document. The Lutheran reformers considered, considered it sufficient for unity to agree upon those things that we find in the Lutheran confessions. And I find it a bit alarming that there's so little scripture and so little reference to the confessions there. In fact, I'm pretty sure that in all five of the critical areas that Dr. Kieschnick lays out, he makes no reference to the Lutheran confessions at all, which is kind of conspicuous by its absence and should concern us all. I want to just, if you don't mind, Evan, I just want to touch on um, one other thing that I that I heard there, and that is he talked about areas of disagreement in worship styles. Uh, Evan, we don't disagree in the Lutheran Church of Missouri Synod on the style of worship. Style is irrelevant. We disagree on a theology of worship. The congregations that worship like Pentecostal, Baptist, or Methodist churches have a different theology of worship than congregations that worship like Lutherans worship. It's that simple. It's not a question of style. It's all a question of theology. It's a question of what you believe worship is and therefore how you believe Christians ought to worship. Style is a red herring. I don't know that Dr. Kieschnick intends to mislead when he talks about worship styles. He's using kind of the popular parlance there, but that is, whether intentional or unintentional, very misleading. Style is not the issue. The issue is what we believe worship is and therefore how we believe Christians ought to worship. Uh, Answer that question, uh, what is a, a scriptural, confessional view of worship? Very good question. The scripture's view of worship is that God serves us through the means of grace. Those means of grace are the preaching of God's word and those sacraments instituted by Christ. Those sacraments being holy baptism, the Lord's Supper, and absolution. This is what Christian worship is. It's the substance of Christian worship, and from that substance, the so-called style, quote-unquote style, I would say worship form rather than style, um, from the substance comes the form. So if the substance of Christian worship is the preaching of law and gospel and the administration of the sacraments, the form you end up with, surprise, surprise, is the historic liturgy. Contrary to that is the more modern way of looking at worship as essentially what man does to please God or to appeal to God. And this is very popular in all Christian denominations. It's very popular in the Lutheran Church, Missouri Senate, in congregations that are essentially aping evangelicalism in their worship forms. And if you believe that worship is, first, what we say, what we do, what we bring on Sunday morning to God, that 
substance expresses itself in a worship form consistently that is, I guess you could call it contemporary worship, largely an emphasis on what's going on inside of us, what we have to say, and what we're doing. So we're talking about two different theologies of worship at work in the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. And frankly, until the leadership of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod recognizes this, we are going to get nowhere on the issue of worship. It's, the divide is only going to grow larger. My next question is uh, a question that I, I am almost embarrassed to ask, but I think it's a question that needs to be asked. And uh, that is a question, what is a Lutheran? Because I spent, uh, people sometimes ask me, uh, did you grow up Lutheran? And I really choke at my answer because I spent the first 18 years of my life in the ELCA. And so I, I, I had to muster up an answer uh, whether or not I grew up Lutheran. So Pastor Wilkin, what is a Lutheran? A Lutheran is a Christian who understands Holy Scripture and in all of its parts, what it teaches in the light of the 16th century documents of the Lutheran Reformation. In a nutshell, the Book of Concord. That means that a Lutheran is a biblical Christian taking the Bible very seriously, but understanding that this Bible has a central message and can be interpreted rightly or wrongly. And the right interpretation of Scripture is expressed in those 16th century documents of the Lutheran Reformation, the Book of Concord. That's what a Lutheran is in essence. If you want to speak about it in more uh, theological terms, a Lutheran is a Christian who understands himself to be uh, a sinner, rightfully deserving eternal damnation from conception, who has been declared righteous by God the Father solely by his grace through faith in Jesus Christ alone. That's the doctrinal formulation of it. And along with that belief in being declared righteous by grace through faith for Christ's sake alone, come all the other things that Christians everywhere at all times ought to believe. Again, those things expressed in the, in the Book of Concord. Um, to put it in a sacramental way, another way of talking about a Lutheran, a Lutheran is, who, is someone who understands that God communicates his forgiveness of sins, his mercy, and eternal life to him, a sinner, via those specific things instituted by Christ, the preaching of God's word, holy baptism, the Lord's Supper, and the word of absolution. A Christian who looks for uh, God's mercy specifically in those places and no place else, not in his own experience, not in his feelings, not in the community, no, no other place other than those specific things instituted by Christ. In this first consideration from President Kieschnick on doctrinal agreement, as we go into the convention, um, he said that God has blessed this church with doctrinal agreement. And uh, when I heard this, 
I quite honestly thought of uh, a speech that you gave. I think it was at the uh, Brothers of John the Steadfast meeting. Um, and and you talked about in that in that talk. I think what you coined as LCMS exceptionalism. Would you talk about that? Yeah, um, <laughs> that's a term that I that I borrowed or I coined um, from what people commonly talk about American exceptionalism. And uh, it's interesting. I actually do believe in American exceptionalism because I think the the bar the standard there is quite a bit lower, um, but. When it comes to LCMS exceptionalism, I think it is probably the, the biggest problem we have right now running in the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. It is the belief that somehow the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod is not like other church bodies. We're exceptional in that we really can't go wrong. We really can't make any big mistakes. We can err here and err there and flirt with this and flirt with that. But ultimately, somehow we have a shield of divine protection around us that keep, keeps us from falling into heresy. This belief is not consciously expressed by many in the Lutheran Church Missouri Senate, but it is pervasive. And I, I used to believe it. I used to believe that the Lutheran Church Missouri Senate was exceptional, that while it might stray occasionally, God would somehow keep it from straying in such a way so as to do damage to the gospel permanently. I don't believe it anymore because if you look at the history of our church body, it's not borne out by history. And if you look at the present state of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod, it's quite obvious that the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod can and does err. And that we have no promise if we stray from God's word and from what it means to be Lutheran, from our confession, we have no promise that we're going to remain Lutheran in spite of ourselves. And lastly, uh, the, the tail end of this video that we played, um, President Kieschnick talked about remaining in covenants of love. What does he mean by that? It's an interesting term, isn't it? It's a term that I think probably grew up in the beginning of his administration, where President Kieschnick began by talking about the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod not really having any serious doctrinal agreements. Now, he's changed his tune a little bit. But at the beginning, this covenants of love was kind of jargon for we may, uh, congregation and pastor A may practice open communion. Many congregations and pastors in the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod practice open communion. Let's just admit it. They're not practicing close communion. They're practicing open communion. If I can walk into your church on a Sunday morning and make it to the communion rail and receive the Lord's body and blood without anyone talking to me or by simply checking um, off certain boxes on a communion card that no one ever looks at, that's open communion. And that's, I would say, probably the standard practice in many Lutheran Church Missouri Synod congregations, if not the majority of Lutheran Church Missouri Synod congregations, whether they intend to or not, they're practicing open communion. Anyone can commune without any particular inquiry as to their confession, their belief. And again, to the communion cards, the, uh, 
the communion cards, you, you might, you could just try it sometime, go to one of these churches and instead of checking the boxes, um, write, write out your grocery list and hand it to the elder. He'll still let you go to communion. He doesn't look at it. No one looks at it. They look at it afterwards to see if they want to send you a letter welcoming you to the congregation, but they don't look at whether or not you, uh, believe what it is Lutherans believe about the Lord's Supper. Um, Congregation A practices open communion. Congregation B and its pastor practices closed communion, the historic practice of the church. That is, those who commune at the altar ought to believe and confess publicly, not just that morning, but publicly by their membership um, in a church body and a congregation what it is um, it is what it is that is confessed at that altar that's closed communion historic practice of the church and uh, there's no quibbling about that congregation a practices open communion congregation b practices closed communion covenants of love is supposed to be somehow we're going to work together and dialogue together on the issue of communion practice until we reach some agreement well, Evan, until the practice changes at Congregation A, that is, until they stop practicing open communion, we can talk about loving one another and being in a covenant with one another, but it's meaningless. We're really talking about congregations repenting, pastors and congregations repenting of their false communion practices and returning to the historic practice of communion fellowship. That's what needs to happen. We can love each other all day long, but until there's repentance and a change of this false practice, the covenant is, in, in essence, ends up being, and this is what it's actually ended up being, it's called a covenant of love. What it really is, is kind of a coercive thing that says we have to continue to commune together in spite of the fact that we teach and practice differently about communion fellowship. Uh, it's a recipe for disaster. Call it a covenant of love. Call it, uh, I think the, the, uh, the better translation of that, of that jargon is, hey, you've agreed to walk together. That means you have to commune with us whether we practice communion rightly or not, whether we believe and teach about communion rightly or not. That's coercion. That's not a covenant of love. That's not a voluntary agreement to walk together. That's a voluntary agreement to walk separately but say we're walking together. The second critical consideration is unity, concord, and harmony within our Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. The 2007 convention of our church body adopted a resolution asking for a task force to be created that would conduct a summit regarding the matter of unity, concord, and harmony in our beloved Synod. The task force has completed the first part of its work, and here is part of what they have observed. We are convinced that until we find a way to speak and to listen to one another in love, little hope exists for moving toward greater concord in doctrine and practice. Luther's insight is compelling. Where there is no love, there doctrine cannot remain pure. The task force identified after visiting with and interviewing at length 30 respected leaders in the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod, 
a number of areas of concern with respect to unity, concord, and harmony. They include the inability to deal with diversity, the lack of civility and accountability, a politicized culture, and distrust. They also observe that disharmony in the LCMS is primarily a clergy problem and that there is poor communication across party lines. This is a very important study as we continue to work toward greater unity, concord, and harmony in our relationships with one another. I know that you keep this task force in your prayers, and so do I, particularly as they conclude their work of determining how best to go about achieving these wonderful gifts from God. They conclude this report by saying, Surely our unity in Jesus Christ and our concord in doctrine are treasures to be cherished and preserved. And surely God's mission on earth unites us in a common cause with eternal consequences. May the harmony we share as we walk together increasingly enhance our unity and concord for the sake of God's mission. Now, Pastor Welkin, what I found so shocking about this video of President Kieschnick is its self-contradiction. Uh, and that is that um, he spends the first uh, two minutes talking about the the discord, the um, the problems, the divisions in our synod. But then at the end says, may the harmony we have bring forth further unity. So do we have harmony or not? No, we don't. Uh, let's just admit we don't have harmony. Um, is it is it uh, due to the fact that we're all sinners? Well, of course it is. I mean, I think um, pointing that out is like, you know, pointing out that... Uh, the sun shines during the daytime. <laughs> the, our discord is due to our sin. Let's just admit that. And yes, sin is a lack of love. That's quite true. I found it remarkable that when talking about our um, our unity and our harmony, which is really an issue of how individuals deal with one another when they genuinely disagree on doctrine and practice. Let's just be honest about that. What is Dr. Kieschnick's solution? It's a purely institutional solution. It's to convene a task force and issue a report. He called it a study. It's, it's not a study, by the way, Evan. It's a position paper. A study talks to hundreds or thousands of people, assembles the data, and then in a dispassionate way reports on the data gathered from a large sample. This task force talked to under 30, quote-unquote, LCMS leaders. I don't know who the heck they are. Um, obviously, hand-picked. Otherwise, you wouldn't have only, you know, 20-some of them. Um, th- that's one thing that actual studies don't do. They don't hand-pick their sources of information. Uh, this one does. And then on the basis of talking to under 30 members of the Lutheran Church Missouri Senate, issues what they call a report, which is actually a position paper. And um, I find this rather galling, to tell you the truth, um, to call it a study when it's in fact just 
let's get together and say what we think is wrong with the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod rather than actually doing a study. And from a dispassionate um, look at the data, determine what the problem really is. So what did they determine the problem is? A lack of love. There we are back to the covenants of love thing. And um, that, again, is so obvious and self-evident. It's like saying, it, it is like saying the, the source of our disharmony is sin. To say the source of our disharmony is a lack of love. So did we need a task force to do this study to tell us that we're sinners? No. Why don't we get more specific? Uh, I find it intriguing that one of the things this quote-unquote study uh, found was that a big part of our disharmony comes from the inability to deal with diversity. And to me that sounds like very thinly veiled code for you pastors and some of you lay people who just can't accept the changes that are coming upon the church from the culture. You pastors and you lay people who just can't deal with the fact that the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod congregation down the street no longer teaches or practices as a Lutheran congregation, but teaches and practices as a pan-evangelical congregation. You pastors and lay people who can't deal with the fact that the leadership of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod wants to ape evangelicalism, non-denominational evangelicalism, in our worship practice, in our theology, in, and in our approach to uh, matters doctrinal and practical. Well, I wouldn't call being concerned about the doctrinal decline of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod an inability to deal with diversity. Uh, by the way, that term diversity, if you ever want to there's if you ever if you want to see the the camel's nose in the tent there it is <laughs> diversity is a term that is so slippery um just ask someone from the evangelical lutheran church um in america what has slipped in the tent in the name of diversity and you'll get a laundry list of some rather shocking things I think the inability, or I should say the unwillingness, to deal with diversity when diversity is diverse teachings and diverse practices in what is supposed to be a doctrinally unified church body, I think that an unwillingness to deal with diverse doctrines is a good thing. I think it's what actually um, helps hold doctrinal unity together. Is this a clergy problem? Uh, yes, but that is a problem. It shouldn't be just a clergy problem. The unwillingness to deal with diverse and new teachings in the church should be a clergy and layperson problem. Unfortunately, we have allowed the laity of our church, in spite of their 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 call to be taught better. We've allowed them be, to be dumbed down. The reason that it, it's, it appears that the pastors are the only ones that care about this is because we have not been teaching our people to care about doctrine and the practice that flows from that doctrine. We've allowed them, in effect, to be um, 
non-Lutheran members of Lutheran congregations. Quote-unquote Lutherans who don't know what Lutherans really believe, teach, confess, and practice. It should be a problem for everybody. The, the new teachings, the new practices, and the deviations from our historic teachings and practices that are so common in the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod ought to concern everybody, pastors and lay people. And I think it's right. By and large, right now, uh, pastors are the ones who are most concerned about this. Why? Because pastors are the ones who see the dangers of the false teaching and false practices. But the laity ought to see those dangers, too. We need to catechize our laity much better than uh, they have been. You know, calling it a clergy problem strikes me a little bit like calling uh, the conditions in the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod before the walkout a seminary faculty problem. (laughs) Well, it was obviously much more than a seminary faculty problem, wasn't it? Uh, What... When I first saw the, the the titles of these five considerations, I thought that there would be some overlap between one and two because number one talks about doctrinal agreement. Number two talks about unity, concord, and harmony. And I thought, well, what's the difference? Well, now that I watch the video, I see the difference. What he means by unity, concord, and harmony are issues like dealing with diversity or uh, politicized culture or distrust. Um, why not have... Uh, those two, one of the same, that our unity and concord actually comes from our doctrinal agreement. You know, it really should be one thing, shouldn't it? Um, in fact, he acknowledges there that our, or at least that task force quote-unquote report, acknowledges that our doctrinal unity should lead to more concord. Well, why not deal with it as the one problem it is, rather than trying to deal with our doctrinal unity as some sort of an abstraction and our harmony and concord um, as another abstraction. Let's deal with them both as concrete realities. Let's say, let's admit, let's admit that the reason Pastor A doesn't trust Pastor B is not because he just doesn't love Pastor B for some reason. He doesn't like him. Let's admit that the the reason that Pastor A doesn't, doesn't trust or love Pastor B is because these two guys actually disagree. And doctrinal disagreement breeds distrust. Let's admit that. And uh, once we've done that, then at least we're honest with one another. Then I think we can actually, in spite of our disagreements, practice love toward one another by first and foremost being honest. Some of the nicest, most likable pastors I have ever met are the least Lutheran pastors I've ever met. Well, I personally like them. I personally would love to sit and have a cup of coffee with them. But I can't commune with them. And that would be called unloving on my part, although I might personally love them to pieces. It is truth and love together. And truth begins with honesty. As long as we are unwilling to admit that the distrust and the lack of love that exists in the Lutheran Church Missouri Senate is born largely of real doctrinal disagreements, then, as I said before, we can love each other all we want. We're still not being honest with one another. The third critical consideration is the mission of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. 
in grateful response to God's grace and empowered by the Holy Spirit through word and sacraments, the mission of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod is vigorously to make known the love of Christ by word and deed within our churches, communities, and the world. That's the mission statement of our synod adopted by the 1998 convention. In the year of our Lord 2004, the convention further resolved that we should make every effort under that mission statement to reach 50 million people in the United States with the gospel of Christ and another 50 million people around the world through our missionaries and also in concert with our partner churches in different parts of this world. I'm excited about what's going on with respect to the fulfillment of that mission. I'm told by our mission staff that the objectives that have been articulated and identified are these. Number one, the establishment of 2,000 congregations, new missions in the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod here in the United States. Number two, the revitalization of 2,000 existing congregations who have reached a plateau or who are declining with respect to their mission zeal. Number three, increased by 50% the number of career missionaries on the foreign mission field. And number four, to provide increased assistance to our partner churches around the world. I'm also told by the mission staff that between now and 2017, which is the target date that the convention established for accomplishing these objectives, that we are now over 600 new mission plants in the United States, and also 363 congregations are currently involved in the revitalization process. These objectives are part of the Synod's mission initiative called Ablaze, also adopted in 2004. In my report to the convention workbook, I thank God for the blessings that Ablaze has been to those congregations and those districts who have been very intimately involved with its objectives. I also mention my awareness that not everybody in the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod is excited about Ablaze. As a matter of fact, there are some in our Synod who are very critical of Ablaze. And in my report, I go on to say, I have listened to those concerns, and I'm very concerned about the concerns to the extent that I've asked the mission executive director and also the staff and now the floor committee on missions, which just met recently, has produced a resolution for consideration by this year's convention, which would address those concerns about a blaze so that all congregations and pastors and districts and organizations within our Lutheran Church Missouri Synod can indeed continue to work harmoniously, hand in hand, to accomplish that great mission task of reaching lost people with the precious saving gospel of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. I've often said, time is short, hell is hot. I pray that the mission of our Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod, will continue to be blessed by God who has given us that mission 
and that his rich blessing will be upon all of our endeavors to accomplish that task. All right, so this consideration from uh, President Kieschnick deals with the M word, that is mission. Uh, Pastor, uh, sometimes on the, on the regular broadcast of Table Talk Radio, we play this game called Answer the Question As. And um, it's usually with Professor Plus, and uh, we have a wheel of questions and a wheel of, of theological understandings. And we spin both wheels, and Pastor Plus has to answer the question, uh, whatever the question is, as that particular theological understanding. So, I think we're going to play this uh, with you. Uh, first, as a LCMS bureaucrat, answer the question, what is mission? Oh, man. Uh, money. Dollars. Unrestricted money flowing upward to my department. That's what it is from a synodical bureaucrat's um, perspective. Mission is spelled not with two S's, but two dollar signs. And there's no two ways about it. Anyone who tells you different is lying to you. And that's the sad reality of every single national church body. Mission, the the bureaucracies. Because their mother's milk is mission money. Not the proclamation of the gospel. What is mission from the perspective of a pastor or a congregation? Yes. It's, it's Sunday morning. It's preaching the gospel to the people who are there and then those people who are there carrying that gospel out in their lives and their vocations to um, whoever they happen to bump into. It is uh, a new baby baptized. It is a, uh, a, a table full of people receiving the body and blood of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of their sins. It's a room full of people hearing the absolution after they've confessed their sins. That's the mission of the church. I've often said, and I've asked many congregations as I've traveled about, uh, do you support a missionary? And the hands go up and people say, yeah, we support uh, missionary um, X in country Y. And um, I'm, I'm interested in that answer because it It uh, indicates a view of the mission of the church, which is far away from us and being done by someone else. And maybe it's being done by the synodical bureaucracy in St. Louis. Maybe it's being done by a missionary off on foreign soil. Then I ask the question again, do you support a missionary? And they start to get the idea that maybe I mean something different by missionary than the synodical bureaucracy has been teaching us for a you know, hundred years. Every congregation that has a pastor supports a missionary. They call him pastor. He's a missionary. Every pastor is a missionary. His mission field is his congregation and the community where that congregation is found. Every congregation that supports a pastor supports a missionary. We have, what, uh, 7,000 missionaries in the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. They're, they're, they're spread out all over the United States doing what missionaries do. As long as we define the mission of the church as something other than the preaching of the word and the administration of the sacraments to sinners, wherever we find sinners, we are going to misunderstand what the mission of the church is. Um, I find it unbelievably ironic that Dr. Kieschnick, near the end of his comments there, said, um, time is short and hell is hot, and yet his quote-unquote mission program is called The Blaze. 
amazing to me. <laughs> um, there's so much in a blaze to commend because in terms of its distribution of money, it does support some good stuff. It also supports a lot of, uh, I, what should I call it? Foolishness. I'm deeply concerned about what he called the revitalization process, which is if you actually look into the specifics of what the revitalization process uh, under a blaze is, it's basically restructuring congregations to produce minimal pastoral accountability when it comes to those things that pastors ought to do that is preaching the gospel and administering sacraments, and maximum pastoral accountability when it comes to things that pastors are not called to do, like grow the church numerically, it's, it's very sad. Um, it, you know, a blaze could be simply the answer to the question on your wheel, answer the question about the church's mission from a Baptist's perspective. Answer as a Baptist, and what you would get is a blaze, largely. With a few, what a blaze does, it's taken basically a Baptist theology of the mission of the church and peppered it with Lutheran terminology. It, you can't Lutheranize something like that. Um, my biggest concern, actually, about a blaze is the money. To tell you the truth, Evan, uh, if you look at what, and I'm I'm going to ballpark the figures here, but I think they're accurate within um, a couple million or a fraction of a million. Ablaze claims to have had pledged to its $100 million goal about $60 million so far. Ablaze claims to have collected of those pledges just under $30 million. And in the report, which is to the convention that's coming up here in a couple of weeks, on that, on the money side of a blaze, which is, by the way, I think about one or two sentences, very vague sentences. The ablaze program reports that it is actually uh, dispersed, that is handed out under just under seven million dollars, sixty million dollars pledged, just under thirty million dollars collected. $7 million spent for actual mission work. And the rest? No word whatsoever in the official report that is in the workbook. There is no accounting whatsoever for that other, let's say, 21 to $23 million. Okay? Somewhere, someplace, there is an accounting of that. I am certain of it. Why not put that in the report? Why not say, well, look, it cost us a lot to get a blaze started up, and so it cost us about $21 million to pay for materials, consultants, um, uh, glow pens, uh, uh, lapel pins, tie pins, uh, bracelets, um, flashlights. Um, all, the, all the merchandise is there, by the way. Um, it's, it's just cost us that much to produce all this stuff. And we've only been able to hand out to actual congregations to do, quote-unquote, mission work, $7 million. Oh, by the way, 
I think a large portion, I'm, I'm, I'm certain I will be um, proven right on this, a large portion of that unaccounted for 21 to $23 million of money given to Ablaze is probably just the cost of raising the $30 million to begin with. Uh, the fundraisers of the Lutheran Church Missouri Senate have shown themselves to be absolute pros at spending about 50 cents to raise a dollar. And I would, 40 to 50 cents. I would suspect that a huge portion of that unaccounted for 21 to $23 million is just fundraising costs. If it costs you that much, that means if they keep with the trend and they raise $100 million by 2017, that is actually collect $100 million, it will probably, I mean, it makes your mind boggle to even consider this, it will probably have costed about $40 million to do it. Now, any professional, I mean real fundraiser, that has to actually operate in the open marketplace says that if you're spending more than about 12 cents to raise a dollar, you're not getting your money's worth. So you can do the math. My biggest concern about a blaze is a lot of money is being raised and a lot of it is being spent on consultants and fundraisers rather than on what it says it wants to do, which is spread the gospel. But when I said at the beginning, and I know my answer is long here, Evan, when I said at the beginning that for a synodical bureaucrat, mission is spelled with two dollar signs, this is what I mean. Uh, remark then on the goal that it sets out to do, um, and, and this I think is, I mean, what you just described is not what most people know or hear about about Ablaze, but rather they hear about the the 50 million people where, where we've set the goal to reach. And uh, we say then, well, you know, faith comes from hearing and hearing by the word of God, Romans ten seventeen. Uh, so therefore, let's let's uh, get it out to fifty million people by such and such a date. Uh, do you have any remarks on that goal itself? Yeah, the goal is too small. I mean, why set it at a hundred million by twenty seventeen? Why limit it to a hundred million? You, you're gonna. I mean, this is pretty much standard. Um, what, how should I say? This is pretty much standard in in all of human endeavors. If you set your goal at a certain, for anything, at a certain number, you'll either fall short of it or, or you'll meet it. Okay? But we're not called anywhere, anywhere whatsoever in Scripture to set our goals at a certain number of people. What is the goal? The whole world. That's our goal number. Every creature under the sun. That's our goal number. I just think a blaze, in terms of its money, has been too expensive because it's been run out of the, one of the most inefficient and expensive organizations um, in Lutheran Christendom. And I think that it's in terms of its goal for reaching the lost with the message of Jesus Christ has far underestimated the task and far underestimated the power of the gospel to reach people. Critical consideration number four is global confessional leadership. In my nine years of service as the president of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod, frankly, I've been surprised 
for the most part, pleasantly surprised, but also just surprised about the, the amount of time, energy, resources that had been devoted to the matter of providing global confessional leadership in and by the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. Let me just tell you a little about, about what that means. We have been asked by a bunch of church bodies, some of whom are potential partner churches, for assistance in theological education and doctrinal matters. We've been asked by partner churches for assistance not only in theological education and doctrinal matters, but also assistance in mission planting, assistance in providing support for missionaries and pastors of their church bodies, particularly those in third world countries, the pastor's compensations are less than the number of dollars which most of us carry around in our pockets, and that's an annual compensation. I believe that the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod has been richly blessed in many respects, and that as people from other church bodies invite us to assist, we have the blessing and we have the challenge and we have the privilege of responding to those requests in a faithful way. Most of the requests that we've been getting come from churches that are much smaller than we are, as is true of the partner churches with whom the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod is an altar and pulpit fellowship. All of them are smaller than we are, most of them much smaller than we. A new and interesting phenomenon that's going on right now in recent months and weeks and even days is the approaches we're receiving now from church bodies that are larger than the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod, particularly two come to mind from the continent of Africa. The Ethiopian Evangelical Church, Makana Jesus, and the Evangelical Lutheran Church of Tanzania. Both of those church bodies have membership of more than 5 million baptized members. That's 5 million in each of those two church bodies. They're coming to us asking us for theological support. One example should suffice. A local diocesan bishop, that's kind of like a district president of the church in Tanzania, came to our building, the International Center, your building, a few weeks ago. And as we talked, I asked him, what can we do for you? And he said, bring pastors from our church body in Tanzania to your seminaries and train them. I said, specifically, what is the the most important need for training? And he said, we need pastors who are trained in scriptural and confessional principles with respect to the matters that are in controversy in the worldwide church today, including ordination of women, including the matter of same-gender unions and the matter of the ordination of pastors who are homosexual engaging in homosexual behavior so that our pastors can come back to our church body and stand up against the tide in our church body and in other church bodies in our country away from biblical and confessional positions on those and other matters. My dear friends in Christ, as I looked at that brother and I said, and how will this be funded without missing a beat? He said, 
of course, the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod will pay for this. And I took a deep breath and said, indeed, the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod will somehow make it happen. In addition to those church bodies from those parts of the world, we're also having contacts now from church bodies emerging in our own United States of America, including groups from the Evangelical Lutheran Church in America that are now in formation, and also a group from the Episcopalian Church here in the United States forming the new North American Anglican Church. I guess it's called the Anglican Church of North America. How exciting and humbling it is for people from Christian church bodies who believe strongly that their church bodies have forsaken biblical and confessional roots to come to the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod asking for help, asking for solidarity, asking for support in theological education and in many other ways as well. The Lutheran Church Missouri Synod at this moment in history is privileged and challenged to provide global confessional leadership on the basis of Scripture and the Lutheran confessions, and that's a challenge and a privilege that we dare not turn away from, but that we must accept humbly and vigorously for the sake of the gospel. All right, Pastor Wilkin, first uh, to comment on um, the smaller church bodies of which we're an alternate public fellowship. What should the LCMS require of those desiring fellowship with the LCMS? Well, okay, full doctrinal agreement and, and nothing short of it. It's what we require of all churches with, with whom we enter into altar and pulpit fellowship, and we should continue to require that. Um, I think there's something a little misleading about the way that President Kieschnick presents this. I don't think he intends it to be, I don't think he intends to mislead, but his terminology is curious. He talked about global confessional leadership, but when he actually explains what he means by that, he's actually talking about other church bodies or potential church bodies coming to us to either educate their pastors or help them pay their expenses. But he calls it leadership as though they're coming to us saying, show us how to be confessionally Lutheran. Believe me, Evan, the Lutherans, the confessional Lutherans in Africa don't need to learn anything from us about how to be Lutheran. They're more Lutheran than we are. They need someone to teach their pastors. They know how to be confessionally Lutheran. They just need to educate their pastors. They know how to be confessionally Lutheran. They're more Lutheran than we are in many respects. They need someone to help them pay their expenses. We should do both of these things. We should commit ourselves to do both of these things without question. But let's not call it leadership. Let's not make it sound like these poor people are coming to us confessionally hat in hand as though they need us to run their show, as though they need us to help them know how to be Lutheran. No. If you, if, if, why didn't he call it global confessional education or global confessional funding instead of global confessional leadership? All they're asking for us to do is let us, let, let them 
send some pastors to our seminaries for a formal education. That's education. That's not leadership. They're not asking us how to be Lutheran or to lead them in being Lutheran. They're actually leading the way, to tell you the truth, far better than we are. Um, I think um, this is an attempt to present the Lutheran Church of Missouri Synod as a leader in global confessional Lutheranism that it isn't. We are actually probably in a position to learn far more from our African confessional Lutheran brothers about what it means to be Lutheran than they are in a position to learn from us. We're the ones who are actually, uh, to one degree or another, forsaking or abandoning our confessional Lutheran roots. They're the ones who've just rediscovered them and love them um, apparently more than we do. So let's just be honest and not call it leadership. Let's call it education and funding. Um, they're asking us to help pay, and they're asking us to help educate. Why? Here's, here's the real kicker here. Why are they coming to us, the Lutheran Church Missouri Senate? Because we're rich Americans. It's that simple. Because we live in the most affluent country in the world, and we've got money to burn. It's because the poorest uh, uh, Lutheran in America is still uh, exponentially more wealthy than the richest Lutheran in Africa. It's because we have money, and we have more money than we need. That's why they're coming to us. They're coming to us because they don't want to go to the ELCA. The ELCA is no longer Lutheran, and they know it. So they find the next most Lutheran church body that has money. And I do not fault them for this. I do not fault them for this in any way whatsoever. They're doing exactly what ought to be done. They are seeking from those who have, among their Christian brethren, assistance and help financially because they don't have. And golly, Evan, we shouldn't have to sit there in, the, in an office in the fourth floor of the Lutheran Church Missouri Senate's International Center and wait for a diocesan bishop to travel all the way over here to seek an audience with our president before we help them. We should have been over then helping them before they ask. We should be over there saying, what do you need? What can we pay for? Can we take a couple of your pastors back and educate them? We shouldn't wait for them to come and ask us. We should be doing it already. That's the, that is the responsibility we have as rich American Lutherans, is to go find them where they are in need and help them right there and not wait to be asked and then call it leadership. To give a couple examples of what you're talking about, um, I was one of the students that had the opportunity last year to go to Madagascar through the LCMS World Relief and Human Care, which traditionally takes uh, six, six students from the Fort Wayne Seminary. And I was struck when we, when we got there and found that most pastors are taking care of at least three churches. And uh, there was one church in particular we went to. It was on the, on the uh, grounds of a, uh, a leper colony. And uh, when we got there, they were so excited that there was an ordained pastor here. They saying, can we have communion? You know, can you bring us communion? And they, you know, they just patiently wait for a, a, someone who is called and ordained to bring communion. They don't stir up some devices of their own saying, well, we can take care of it. This is something that we can do. And then the other example is is when my friends went to South Africa to the seminary in Pretoria and met all kinds of 
students, uh, seminarians there who uh, have, have left their, their families uh, to go study at a seminary to, to learn theology. And then on Saturdays, they'll, they'll work a job to, fit, to, to, to get a few bucks to send home to support the family. And, and here in America, we're not even willing to relocate our families to the seminary. We have to look at other, other options. So I, I think what you said is, is certainly confirmed. <laughs> it's very telling. And, you know, this is, these are people who know what it means to be confessionally Lutheran um, when it's hard to be confessionally Lutheran and when it's hard simply to be a Christian. They, these are men who are studying to be the pastor, pastors when they know that it's going to mean for them a life of extremely difficult labor. And we're graduating, guys. No offense, Evan, because I know you're in the process. We're graduating guys from the seminary who expect to be sent to the suburban big box church and be senior pastor their first year um, and, you know, live in, in a lifestyle to which their parents, for which their parents worked 40 years so that they could become accustomed to it. Um, we should be humbled by the mere request. But we, as I said before, we should, why, when we know that this is what the situation is for Lutherans elsewhere in the world, why are we sitting in our offices on the fourth floor of the International Center waiting for them to come and ask us? Why? Why are we making them come to us hat in hand? And then why are we turning around and calling it leadership when all they're asking for us to do? They don't want us to lead them. In fact, I imagine some of them might be quite wary about us leading them theologically because they may be concerned about our theological direction. They want us to help them financially. They want us to help them educate their pastors so that they can do this on their own. You know, there are more Lutherans in Africa, I believe, than there are in the United States. And... I think we need to finally admit that just because we're rich and just because we have peace on our borders and just because we drive fancy cars and are able to build big office buildings for our church officials, that doesn't make us leaders. What what makes for a leader in global confessional Lutheranism are Christians who are faithful to the scripture and the confessions and will not compromise with the culture. And whoever is doing that, I will call a leader in global confessional Lutheranism. And at this point, honestly, I can't say that of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod or of its current leadership. And now the fifth and final consideration by President Kieschnick for the 64th regular convention of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod, which takes place in Houston, Texas, July 10th through 17th. Critical consideration number five is financial realities. One would have to have been living in a cave the past couple of years not to know about what's going on with respect to the economic challenges that are being experienced not only here in the United States, but also in different parts of the world. The global economy is indeed impacted by many, many factors that have practical expression in the lives of people and in the lives of businesses and corporations and governments in many ways. The church is not immune from the impact of the economic difficulties which we're facing in our country and in our world. Just recently, the chairman of our Synod's Board of Directors, Chaplain Don Mucko, and I, 
at the request of the board of directors of our synod, started calling the district presidents and chairman of the boards of directors of our districts, particularly those who have been and are experiencing financial challenges. As Don and I got involved with those 30-minute calls, 30 minutes for each of the districts, I said, you know, Don, we need to call all 35 of our districts, not just the ones that we know are having some financial difficulties. And so we did. We called every one of the 35 district presidents and board of directors chairmen. Those calls included prayer, expressing thanksgiving for the partnership in the gospel which the synod at the national level experiences in a beautiful way with each one of our 35 districts, expressing thanksgiving for the dollars that are passed along by the district boards of directors and, in some cases, the district conventions for the work of our national and international mission endeavors. We listened also to the ways in which the economic difficulties are affecting our respective districts, some of the reductions in force that they've had to make, some of the sacrifices that they've had to make. And as we listened, we also became even more aware than we already were that obviously these conditions in our country are affecting congregations, lay people in our congregations pastors and commissioned ministers of the gospel in our congregations. It's obvious, as district presidents have shared with me over the past couple of years, that the economic difficulties are manifesting themselves in different ways in different congregations. Some parts of the country are feeling the pinch in a stronger way than other parts of the country. In some parts of the country, school teachers or directors of Christian education, or deaconesses, or directors of Christian outreach, and even in some cases, associate or assistant pastors, have had to be, have had to be removed from their ministries because of a lack of financial wherewithal to meet the congregation's fiscal obligations. That's a painful thing for a synod president to hear. It's a painful thing for a parish pastor to speak. It's a painful thing for those workers to experience. So it is that we are called upon to keep clear in our minds what it is that we are about in the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. A very good reminder for me comes from Synod President Friedrich Fotenhauer, who in the times of the Great Depression in 1932 at our sentence convention that year said these words. It is true that the present economic conditions throughout the world induce us if we do not keep our vision clear to curtail our church activities. No doubt money is more scarce than in previous years. All the more must we keep before us the lesson of history. First, that the more evil the days, the greater our prospect of success in our Christian work. And secondly, that when children of God are eager to promote their Savior's glory, the Lord supplies the necessary means and blesses them. That's our hope. That's our trust. That's our confidence that God's rich blessing will abound in our lives 
in our congregations, in our districts, in our national church body, in our mission to the world, as we continue to place our trust and confidence in God's providential hand and his blessing upon the work that he has given us to do. Uh, Pastor, it is hard economic times. What is a church to do? Well, it's interesting that uh, President Kieschnick mentions the bad economy as the uh, source of, it's the only source he mentions, actually, of the present financial crisis in the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. Actually, even when the economy was booming, there was a financial crisis in the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. The financial crisis in the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod far predates President Kieschnick's time in office. He cannot be blamed for this. I think he may have done things to exacerbate it, make it worse. Um, but the present financial crisis in the Lutheran Church of Missouri Senate far predates President Kieschnick. Um, it is, I think, a the result primarily not of a bad economy, but of a complete change, a cultural change in our society where Quite honestly, the average parishioner just doesn't think that the national bureaucracy of the church is that important. Brand loyalty no longer is sufficient. Flying the synodical logo flag is no longer sufficient to support a national bureaucracy. Uh, There was a time when you could hoist the synodical logo flag up the flagpole And that brand loyal generation would get out their checkbooks. That generation is largely gone. The next generation simply does not see what's worth paying for in a national synodical bureaucracy. So um, the bad economy is not the reason that LCMS Inc. can't pay its bills. It's a combination of a failure of LCMS Inc. to provide to the average parishioner any proof that they need to help pay the bills. But I think the other thing is um, that we have a, a model of revenue flow that is that, well, let me explain to you how synodical revenue works. Contrary to the way that that President Kieschnick seemed to present present it as though the primary financial crisis is in our congregations, congregations losing their pastors, their deaconesses, their teachers. This is a result of the bad economy. There's no doubt about that. Some pastors may have had to, you know, congregations may have had to say, we can't support a full-time pastor anymore, sorry, or to their deaconess or their teachers. And those, that is a sad situation. And that is a result of the economy. But the financial crisis incentive is primarily at the district and the synodical level, not at the congregational level. The average congregation, while they may have been impacted by a bad economy, is still perfectly willing to pay their pastor. Why? Because they know what their pastor does, and they know why they support a pastor, a man to preach the gospel and administer the sacraments. They're far fuzzier on why they should support a district bureaucracy, and they're completely clueless as to why they should support a synodical bureaucracy. The revenue flow in the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod comes from the congregation through the district to LCMS Inc. And largely districts will simply send a set percentage 
or whatever they receive from the congregations by way of district offerings on up the the stairway to the synodical bureaucracy. And the real financial crisis in the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod is that congregations have been sending less money up to the districts and the districts have been sending less money up to the synod. This isn't about pastors being put out of their offices. This is about LCMS Inc. not being able to pay operational expenses, not being able to support the bureaucracy's day-to-day expenses. So what have we done? This is no secret, Evan. LCMS Inc. has borrowed from restricted gifts, those that is, gifts given for other specific purposes to pay operational expenses. The last time I looked, um, to the tune of more than $15 million. That is money given by Grandma Schmidt for um, Katrina victims or tsunami victims or uh, victims of hurricanes or victim of a tornado in Oklahoma. That money comes in faster than it goes out, and so there's a surplus of it building up in the bank accounts of, uh, of uh, largely of uh, LCMS World Relief and Human Care. And for many years now, LCMS Inc. has simply said, well, that money's just sitting there. It's not going out as fast as it could, so let's borrow it, and we'll pay it back sometime in the future because, of course, it's restricted. It's, it's got strings attached to it, but we'll use it to pay the bills now. Well, now we've overborrowed actually, on those restricted monies to pay the bills. Here's a really good question, Evan. If the Blue Ribbon Task Force on Restructuring Synod and President Kieschnick have their way in Restructuring Synod, LCMS World Relief and Human Care will not exist after this next convention. Will the money borrowed from those restricted gifts given to LCMS World Relief and Human Care for hurricane, tsunami, tornado, flood victims? If LCMS Human Care and um, World Relief and Human Care no longer exists, will that money be paid back? I've never had anyone answer that question for me. In fact, I asked my district president that question. And he said, I don't know. That means if it isn't paid back and goes to the victims that's intended to go and help, that thousands upon thousands of Christians wrote a check to help a victim of a tsunami or a hurricane or a flood, and it went to pay the light bill at LCMS Inc. That's a problem. What I want to know is, and what the average parishioner wants to know is, how does sending my offering to the synodical bureaucracy help me keep my pastor? If I, if the economy's bad and I have to choose between paying my pastor or sending money up to the synodical bureaucracy, which am I going to choose? And that's exactly what's happened in a bad economy. President Kieschnick seems to be saying that if we support the synodical bureaucracy and um, help keep the the uh, lights on at the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod International Center, that's somehow going to help you keep your deaconess or your teacher or your pastor. I'm no economist, but I don't think it will. In fact, I'm pretty sure that if 
we rob Peter to pay Paul, then we might not have Peter. So what congregations need is a slimmer, trimmer, synodical bureaucracy. And I'm not talking about restructuring to make everything the president's job and the president's responsibility, which is what the Blue Ribbon Task Force is essentially asking the synodical delegates to do. I'm talking about cutting departments. Instead of simply getting rid of program boards and making everything the president's responsibility and authority, how about cutting departments that don't directly pertain to the mission of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod? How about not doing, not trying to do everything, but doing, and doing it poorly, but doing the few things that we really are constitutionally required to do as a national church body together and doing them well and less expensively? Why not say, instead of having a synodical board for this and that and every other thing under the sun all fully staffed, why not say, Let's instead of restructuring all of Synod, let's leave the president's office which is with, with as little power as it has right now and cut departments. Now, will some bureaucrats be put out of work? Of course they will. I'm, and will, will that affect people? Of course it will. But the question is, how much longer can we continue to act as though the congregations of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod really want to fund a bureaucracy? They just don't know it yet. And how much longer are we going to act like the mission of Christ's church depends on whether or not our bureaucracy continues at its present levels? How much longer are we going to mistakenly uh, uh, mistake what a bureaucrat in St. Louis does for what a pastor does in his parish every day? Where does the mission of the church take place? Not at 1333 Kirkwood Road. The mission of the church takes place in the pulpits and at the altars of those congregations, those 6,000 plus congregations that dot the landscape of the United States. Every Sunday morning, every day is the pastor's out doing what he's doing and his parishioners are out serving their neighbors in love in their vocations. That's the mission of the church, not a synodical bureaucrat sitting behind his desk producing yet another three-color glossy brochure to send out via expensive snail mail that no one ever reads or looks at. And lastly, Pastor Wilkin, uh, speak to the pastor or the layman going to the convention here in a couple weeks uh, and what advice you would want to lay on their mind as they make the uh, travel down to Texas. Good luck. (laughs) (laughs) Houston is a miserable place in July. I've been there before. Synodical conventions are a tiresome affair, but they're necessary. Um, My best advice is thoroughly understand every single resolution you are asked to vote for or against. Thoroughly understand it. And by that I mean understand it in terms of Lutheran theology. We are a church body, after all. Does this confess 
or promote the further confession and proclamation of the saving gospel of Jesus Christ? Or does it serve some other purpose? Does this candidate for president, vice president, all the other vice presidents, board of directors, or other boards, does this candidate, is he Lutheran? Or is she Lutheran? That's a good question to ask. Don't vote people in who aren't Lutheran. Please don't do that. The ELCA started doing that a long time ago, and it's no longer a Lutheran church body. They started electing Episcopalians, if effectively, as their presidents. And guess what? They're Episcopalians now, for the most part, who still call themselves Lutheran. Um, so does this is this candidate truly Lutheran? Does this candidate want to see this church body remain Lutheran, or does this candidate want to see this church body become something else that is less than Lutheran or other than Lutheran? Does, does this candidate want to boldly confess the Lutheran faith, or, does the, or do they simply want to say what is minimally necessary to pass for a Lutheran at convention time? And I think finally, with regard to the restructuring proposals, which ironically I come to last, but the delegates will probably consider first, do you want anyone, even your most trusted friend, to be invested with the kind of power that the Blue Ribbon Task Force is recommending we invest in the office of the president? It is true, power corrupts, even the best of men. And absolute power corrupts, absolutely. And I've been a Lutheran my entire life from baptism. I've been a Lutheran pastor now for 20 years. My experience pales by comparison to many others. But... I cannot think of a single person that I've ever met in the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod, to whom I would give the kind of power that the task force is asking we give to the office of the president. We simply cannot trust that kind of consolidation of power in the hands of anyone. And all those things that go along with it, all those other parts of restructuring that serve that consolidation of power, why do we need them if we're not willing to allow the, the, that power to be consolidated? You're going to be told at the convention that this is necessary for the financial survival of the Missouri Senate, for the mission to continue, and for the efficiency of the synodical bureaucracy. President Kishnick is right. The synodical bu bureaucracy is incredibly inefficient. It takes a long time to get anything done. We should keep it that way. We like our government politically to run this way, don't we? We want Washington to be inefficient. If Washington were efficient, it would be a dictatorship. We want it to take a long time to implement big changes. Why? Because big changes sometimes, if implemented quickly, destroy the very institutions that they're put forth to, to help. Our synodical bureaucracy is inefficient, 
And it should remain that way so that changes to our doctrine, our practice, and our confession cannot be made the way that they have in the very efficient organizations of the Evangelical Lutheran Church in America or the very efficient organization of the Episcopal Church USA. You know what got them where they are today? Very efficient bureaucracies and a lot of consolidation of power. They're cost efficient. They're time efficient. And now their church bodies are heretical. And if we, I'll just quote Pastor Bill Swirla, who once said, ironically preaching from the pulpit of the chapel at the LCMS International Center. I'm pretty sure it's the last time he was ever invited to preach there. He said, the church has survived 2,000 years of what can only be called gross mismanagement. But it has survived not because it's been mismanaged. And its future survival is not going to be based upon whether it can be managed more efficiently or in a better way. It has survived because the church lives on the word of God and the sacraments of Christ. And it will survive in the future because those will remain among us. So don't let anyone tell you, dear delegate, that the future of the Lutheran Church Missouri Senate depends on restructuring or depends on one man being elected, President Kieschnick or Pastor Matt Harrison. Choose your, make your yeses be yeses for things that are truly Lutheran. Make your yeses be yeses for men who are truly Lutheran. We've been talking with Pastor Todd Wilkin. He's host of the Lutheran radio talk show, Issues Etc. You can find out more about it by going to issuesetc.org. And uh, speaking of the Blue Ribbon Task Force, Issues Etc. has devoted... How many, how many hours of airtime have you guys talked about uh, the Blue Ribbon Task Force, Pastor? Too many, too many. <laughs> um, I, would, I, I think probably, I think six hours in the last year, which is a lot of airtime, um, talking with Dr. Ken Sherb who I believe is the um, hands-down expert in matters of synodical, uh, uh, I was going to say politics, but he's, he's the least political person I've ever met in my life. Um, he understands how the beast functions. He has been through its digestive tract and out at the other end, and he knows how all the organs therein function. And um, he knows how the Constitution works. And he knows how the bylaws function. And so we've been simply tapping his expertise um, in those various hours throughout the last year on the the things being proposed by way of restructuring in the Lutheran Church, Missouri Senate. And you can find the audio and transcripts of that on issuesetc.org. Pastor Wilkin, you've been very generous with your time. Thank you very much. Evan, thank you very much. So it's, it's time for convention. Everyone's going to Houston. We are... Uh, voting on things and, and, and everybody's maybe considering these uh, videos and considerations that the, the president uh, of the Senate has given us. And we're asking the question, why does all this matter? I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a business convention. It doesn't really matter about the mission and work of the church. Well, is that true? 
Someone might say, well, it's only about the gospel as long as the gospel is there. Well, the gospel is what's important, that, that Christ has taken on human flesh. He's entered our world and taken on sin upon himself, crucified that sin on the cross to give us new life and forgiveness. But does that mean these operations of our church have, have nothing to do with that very gospel, to, to get that word out? In fact, it has a lot to do. And so whether we're uh, teaching that the, that the Lord's Supper is his very body and blood, but letting anyone come to the altar, or we're practicing our, in our church that, that worship is, is something that we do rather than what God does for us, these are issues that are very important. And I commend all the delegates who go to, to convention to keep this on their minds as, as they make very important votes. Thank you for listening to this edition of Table Scraps, production of Table Talk Radio. I'm Evan Gigline. See you next time.